three, two, one. Here we go. Here's a head scratcher for you. Is God's existence obvious? If so, then why are there so many other religions? Why are there atheists? And if God's existence is not obvious, then how can anyone be blamed for not believing in him? These are actually fair questions. But the person who's asking them is assuming something, isn't he? This question assumes that atheists and adherents of the world's religions are actually trying to get to God, that they would want to get to God and want to worship God if only he would just reveal himself to them. You sometimes hear atheists and skeptics say this. According to this view, God, if he is there, is hidden. He's not obvious. And people really do not know him. But is this true? And as Christians, can we actually affirm this? As a Christian man, you're trying to base your answers to these questions and others like them on the Bible. So in this episode, we're going to discuss what the Bible actually has to say about this question. This is Worldview Legacy, the show that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders their families and churches need. My name is Joel Sedicase, and my mission is to help you the Christian layman, to build a legacy where you and your kids and your wife will be able to confidently articulate the answers to the questions that the world is asking from the Bible, and you will see Jesus change lives as you share your faith. So, has God revealed himself to atheists? And if so, why are they atheists? Being able to answer this question is going to do a few things for you. It's going to help you better understand the non-Christians in your life, whether they're atheists or adherents of other religions. As you seek to share your faith with them, it's so important to understand them. And this is going to help you be better able to pass on the Christian worldview to the younger generation as you teach your own children to better understand the world around them through God's word, not just what the world claims. Now, sometimes this objection is called the problem of divine hiddenness. And if you've been asked this question before, if you've maybe been wondering it for yourself, you're going to want to listen all the way to the end of this episode. And if you haven't been wondering this, but now that I brought it up, now you are wondering it, this episode is for you as well. Now, if you are someone who considers yourself to be an atheist or an agnostic or a skeptic yourself, then I hope that you hear something that makes you think. And I want you to know that I say these things out of love. I have no hatred towards you. I don't think that I'm smarter than you. I don't think that I'm better than you. I'm probably worse. But I know the love of God, and I want you to know that same love. I want you to experience it through Jesus Christ, the only one who can bring us to that love of God. And if your Christian friend sent you here, then take that as an act of love as well. We care about you. So today, specifically, I'm going to answer a few questions. One, To whom has God actually revealed himself? Two, what do these people know about God and how do they actually respond? And three, how should knowing all this affect the way that you defend your faith? If you find this question thought-provoking and you want to feel more confident answering questions like this and all the other stuff that you need to know to better articulate and defend your faith, then I want to tell you about our free community. It's the group where you can join together with 775 others on the same journey that you're on toward building a legacy for their families, 
You'll get solid answers to questions from the Bible. You'll get healthy conversation to sharpen your positions and stuff to help you grasp the tools of theology and philosophy in practical terms so that you can then pass on the faith to the younger generation. It is a fellowship of people connected together to share ideas, skills, and practical help. And I'll tell you more about the group and how to join at the end of this episode. All right, now let's dive in. Start by considering this question. Would you think about this question? How much knowledge do unbelievers really have about God? Well, according to the Bible, God has revealed himself to people, and this includes non-Christians. Now, someone might just object here. Hey, you can't appeal to the Bible because that's just your book. Of course, your book is going to say that. Other people's books describe God differently, and they don't say that all people know your God. So what if the Quran were to say, all people know Allah? Would you believe that? Well, the answer to this question is actually simple. It's a fair question, but the answer is simple. I wouldn't believe the Quran or any other so-called holy book if it said that all people know some other God besides the Lord, besides the triune God of the Bible. I'm a Christian. I operate out of a biblical worldview. I'm not neutral. You're not neutral. We shouldn't pretend to be neutral here. Now, as I operate out of my biblical worldview, standing on scripture, if you will, I find that the universe makes sense and is exactly the way the Bible describes it. That's really important. Now, on the other hand, when I start with a non-Christian worldview, when I look at whether Islam or atheism, I find that they do not accurately describe the world, nor do they correctly diagnose the human condition, nor do they even give an accounting for the basic realities of human experience, like morality, truth, meaning, knowledge, beauty, purpose, origins, etc. I don't just follow the Bible because it is my book, but because it is self-evidently true. Without the Bible, we can't make sense of anything else. However, when we look through the lens of the Bible, if you will, and its worldview, we can see clearly. And one of the things that we can see is that men really do know God. We're going to dive into that and talk about how that really is. I'm not just going to make this assertion and just leave it for you to try to figure out. I really, I want to show you where the Bible teaches this and then how people really do know God. We're going to, we're going to dig into this. So let's look at where the Bible actually does teach this. Now, if you're listening and you're familiar with apologetics, especially presuppositional apologetics, you already know which passage I'm going to. What is it? Romans 1. Romans 1, 18 through 22. All right, so let's see what that says. Starting in verse 18, I'm reading from the ESV. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. All right, now notice what it says here. Verse 18, 
People suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 19, what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. God has revealed facts, knowledge, information about himself. That's verse 19. Then in verse 20, we see two things. One, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen in his creation, in the things that he has made. And also we see that God's attributes are so clearly seen, it's not ambiguous, it's so clearly seen that people have no excuse. Men are without excuse. And men, of course, is a generic term for humanity. It doesn't just mean men. Sorry, ladies, you're not off the hook here. Now, although people knew God, they did not glorify him and they did not thank him. That's verse 21. And then in verse 22, we see that as a result of the action and the heart condition of human beings, they became fools with worthless thoughts and senseless, darkened hearts. That's verse 22. No one is excluded from this. Everyone who has access to God's creation knows God. That includes unbelievers. That includes atheists. Sin is a universal condition, and so is this sinful suppression of the knowledge of God. Now, I'm telling you what the Bible says, because if you're a Christian, this is your standard for determining the truth about atheists and skeptics, agnostics, and everybody else. What that means is, even if someone tells you, God's never revealed himself to me, I have searched and searched, I've never found any evidence of God whatsoever. If you're a Christian, you have to get your knowledge, you have to get your information about the actual condition of the skeptics and atheists in your life from God's word. So this suppression of the knowledge of God is universal, according to the Bible. Everyone does it. You and I do it apart from God, apart from God's grace. And so now let's ask the question, what do unbelievers actually know about God? They know something, but what do they know? Romans 1.20 says that God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. If you want to know what those are, Paul actually tells you. But let's just pause for a second and realize how this is kind of funny. God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen. You know, I mentioned that one time. I was in some conversation with an atheist online, and I mentioned how God's invisible attributes have been seen. And the person scoffed at it. He said, how can something that's invisible be clearly seen? That doesn't make any sense. And you know what? That's a fair point. If Paul didn't explain what he meant, we might be left in the same position as that skeptic going, how could something invisible be clearly seen? That doesn't make any sense. Paul's going to tell us exactly how God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen. One, he says God's eternal power has been seen. And two, he says his divine nature has been seen. Okay, God's eternal power, that's what he can do. Think about power. Think about after you've just uh, worked out or think about like the day or maybe two days after you work out, right? And you've been loading up on protein and you had a really good workout two days ago. How do you feel two days later? You feel good, right? Like you feel strong. Like as King David says, my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You know, you feel like that. You feel the power. God's eternal power is what he is capable of doing. It's how he can create it's the power that he's possessed for all eternity. He can create worlds and bend their destinies to his will. He can direct history. He can keep the human heart beating. He can hold the atoms of your body together. God's eternal power is amazing. 
And according to Paul, it's been clearly seen. What about his divine nature? What is that? God's divine nature is what he is like. It's his goodness, his logic, his logicalness, his faithfulness, even his triunity, the, the fact that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this is not typically a doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity. This is not typically one that people do come to on their own just by looking at nature. However, I personally believe that the doctrine of the Trinity makes perfect sense of the world. And once you understand it, once you understand the Trinity, the world makes so much more sense. Have you experienced this? Where the laws of logic and the unity and diversity in the world, it all fits together. It makes so much sense when you understand that God is one, there's one God, and God is three. God is diverse within himself. So God's eternal power and God's divine nature, these things are invisible. We can't directly see God. And even if we could, how could we see power? Okay, but we can see the effects of God's power and God's nature. So let's talk now about how people, even atheists, even self-proclaimed atheists and agnostics can see these attributes. All right, how do unbelievers know God? In Romans 1.20, it says that God's invisible attributes, which we just discussed, his power and his nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. How can we see these attributes of God? They're invisible. And the only way to see something invisible is to see it based on the effects that they have on things that you can see, on the visible things. What would you use as an example here? How about the wind? I've never seen the wind. Have you ever seen the wind? No, you can't. It's invisible. It's literally invisible. But... You can see the effects of the wind. I remember recently there was a very windy day here in Chicagoland. I mean, like super windy. I mean, gusts, I don't know if they were 40, 50 miles per hour. And our patio furniture just got bowled over, blown over. We have a cover on our patio furniture up on our back deck. And the cover just blew off. We've got, we had chairs strewn all over our yard. I never once saw the wind but I saw the effects of the wind on the things going on in my backyard. The invisible was seen by its effect on the visible. In a similar way, God's power and God's nature can be seen through what he has made. So we don't see God directly, but we see him through his creation. That includes the world around us, just like I saw power of the wind and the nature of the wind blowing the things around in my yard. That was something external. So we see God's power and nature on the outside, world external to us, but we also experience and witness God's power and nature within ourselves too. See, we too are part of God's creation. And I'm a big believer that there are some things that can be known about God simply by looking within, looking at our own minds, our hearts, our consciences, our wills, our thinking. Now that doesn't mean I'm not getting new agey here. God is within everyone. I'm not saying that. If you're a Christian, God is within you. But what I'm saying is there are certain elements of us as human beings, as persons, that point to the signature that God has put on his creation. Why do you have a conscience? Why do you have a, a moral sense about the world? Now, your morality might be a little different than, or your sense of morality might be a little bit different than mine, but why are we both moral beings? Why do we both get upset when we see someone being mistreated? 
why do we recognize things like uh, abortion is wrong and uh, abusing people is wrong? Or how about just why do we get angry when someone steals from us or tries to trick us? Why do we appreciate beauty and art? Why do we love to collect things and appreciate just the, the exquisite craftsmanship of different things? Or why do we recognize the glory if you're watching sports, I like to watch rugby. You know, when you see someone score a try and they're just celebrating and rejoicing, why do we celebrate and exult in those moments? That's part of the nature of God. That's part of the image of God, I should say, that he has given to us. We are part of God's creation. There's certain things that we can know about God by looking at our own hearts, minds, consciences, will, thinking, etc. So there's a few, here's a few more examples that I want to share with you. And then think of some examples on your own. Okay, we can see God's power by observing the orbits of the planets. We can see God's nature in the laws of science, which remain consistent from day to day. We can see God's nature in the pain that we feel in our conscience when we tell a lie to someone we love. We can see God's nature in the way that societies create laws to govern themselves and to execute justice. So think about God's attributes, his almighty, his everlasting power and his nature, his truth, goodness, beauty, justice, faithfulness, mercy, wrath, intelligence, provision, knowledge, foresight, grandeur, glory, etc. What other examples of God's nature can you think of? Let me know. Get in touch. Thethink.institute slash contact. Let me know. When people experience God's goodness. God's power, God's nature. How do they respond? According to Romans 1.18, they suppress the truth. And they do this by unrighteousness. In other words, you and I, our neighbors, our fellow humans, we love to sin. Yet deep down, we know that God is good and God must punish sin. We recognize this. It's written on our hearts. When we do something wrong or when we see someone do something wrong, we understand that deserves punishment. So we have to suppress the thought that there is a good God who punishes sin. It's a terrifying thought to realize that a person is a sinner and that a person deserves wrath. Because we love our sin. So we try to keep God at arm's length. We ignore him and we suppress the knowledge that we have of him. This is a coping mechanism. Make no mistake. The goal is to avoid dealing with our sin and dealing with a holy God. So think about the facts that people have about God as being like ping pong balls floating on the surface of a pool. One of those stand-up pools that your parents had or your neighbor or your friend had growing up one of those stand-up pools about three feet deep, four feet deep, and you're standing in this pool. Now, the unbeliever who wants to suppress the knowledge of God is faced with this pool full of ping-pong balls that are facts about God. And these facts testify to the fact that God is good, God is God, He's not, and he has to suppress these facts, hold them under the surface of the water, because as long as they're under the surface of the water, he doesn't have to deal with them, doesn't have to think about them. Okay, so the, the surface of the water, that's the threshold of a person's awareness, the self-conscious experience of life. So he has to hold those things down and suppress them. But the unbeliever, the atheist, or whoever, in order to suppress this knowledge of God, he can only hold down so many at a time. How many ping pong balls could you hold down at a time? Eight, 10, 12, 50? 
maybe, but the other ones are going to stay afloat. And even if you could gather them all together and hold them down, sooner or later, you're going to lose control of one of them or two of them, three of them, and they're going to pop up. And when they pop up, they're going to go higher than the surface. They're going to come into hyper-awareness. This is why non-Christians, atheists, people who deny Christianity will oftentimes be extremely focused and dedicated to some moral cause or some, I don't know if you want to say hobby, some sort of aesthetic pursuit. Some non-Christians are vehemently pro-animal rights or pro the environment or pro-social justice or pro-art or they'll get really into fandoms, things like that. John Calvin, the old preacher and reformer, said that the human heart is an idol factory. If we are suppressing the knowledge of God, we will find something else to hyper-focus on. But because we live in God's world, the thing that we will focus on is going to be some, it's going to express some attribute of God. Now, because we're suppressing the knowledge of God in other areas, it the expression of God that we pursue in that thing, in that idol is going to be distorted and it's going to be bent. And so we'll make an idol out of those things that we pursue. But this is why people do get hyper-focused on moral causes or what they perceive to be moral causes, virtuous causes. It's, be it's because of truth suppression. They suppress certain facts about God, but they can't deny his perfect standard of goodness or beauty or justice perfectly. So their zeal for those things is one way of compensating for the truths, truths that they deny. And I'm not saying this in judgment on anybody as if I'm better. I do the exact same thing so many times in my life. And I have to confess to the Lord when he shows this to me. I have to repent of this. So do you. So think about these ping pong balls popping up to the surface of the water and out of the water. And that will give you a picture of what this truth suppression looks like discussed in Romans 1. Now, how should all of this affect your apologetic, how you defend your faith. Well, the Bible actually gives us accounts of Jesus and the apostles engaging in apologetics. We get to see some great examples of Paul, Peter, and of course, the Lord Jesus defending the truth. We see them defending the truth of the Christian message and worldview. And what we see in these accounts over and over is this. They deal with unbelievers as though they are morally responsible for suppressing the truth about God. This does not mean that they ran around calling non-Christians liars. And it doesn't mean that you should either. You know, admit it, you know God, you sinner. Sometimes you might have to go that route. I'm not saying never go that route. But this is not the example that we see in Scripture. Most of the time, you do have like certain Jewish religious leaders being called brood of vipers, that sort of thing. I'm not saying it's never appropriate by any means, but more often than not, when you're speaking with a non-Christian, you want to follow Peter's instruction in 1 Peter 3.16 and deal with them with gentleness and reverence or respect. That means reverence towards God and respect and courteousness towards your neighbor. So here's how you should use this knowledge. Always keep it in mind that the person to whom you're speaking is created in the image of God, Genesis 1.27, and really does have knowledge of God. 
to the degree that he is denying God or denying the Christian message, he is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Your job as a Christian, as an apologist, is to find ways in conversation to uncover the truth about how he is suppressing the truth. You need to expose the inconsistency between what he says he believes or the belief that he lacks and what he actually knows to be true, as demonstrated by what he thinks, says, and does. Now, this is not easy. It requires a lot more than just shouting at someone. It requires a lot of listening. And I know if you're listening to this program, if you're listening to this show, you're probably not someone who goes out and just tries to score points on atheists. You're probably listening because you actually care. You care about the person's soul. You care about what happens to them after they die and what kind of life they live here on earth. That's a good thing. When you're dealing with truth suppression, you're dealing with hearts and minds, not just surface level arguments. So what do you think? Is it surprising to you that everyone knows God? How does this make you feel? It should increase your urgency, your sense of awareness that the people you're speaking with really are separated from God. And my friend, there is only one way that someone can get right with God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ, by repenting of sins and trusting in Jesus. Why? Because the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gospel, the good news, is that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, just like God said that he would in the Old Testament. He was buried, and he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to over 500 people at once. He has ascended back to heaven, and now he forgives everyone who confesses that he is Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead. Repent of your sins, trust in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's the only way to get right with God. Do you have that sense of urgency? Do you know that the atheists in your life need Jesus in this way? I hope so. And I hope that this idea that the ping pong analogy and the idea of suppressing the truth, I hope that this increases your urgency to share Jesus with others. So now you know, to whom has God actually revealed himself? Everyone. Everyone who has interacted with the world in some way. He's also put knowledge of himself in our own hearts and our own minds. And yes, that means God has revealed himself even to self-proclaimed atheists. What do these people know about God and how do they actually respond? God has revealed his eternal power and his divine nature. That means what he is like, what he can do. But instead of glorifying him, instead of thanking him, they responded by continuing to sin and by suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And as a result, man's foolish heart has become darkened. And even with all that, man is without excuse. And how should this affect your apologetic? How you defend your faith? We don't yell at them and call them liars, but we do expose the truth in love by showing them the inconsistency between what they say they believe. They say they don't believe in God, and yet they speak, think, and act as if the world was created by the very God of the Bible, as if he's real. Now, if you found this entertaining, educational, and you've been inspired to learn more, you need to learn about the Think Squad community. Now is the time to become the worldview leader that your family and your church need. Join the Think Squad today. Just open up Facebook, search for 
Think Squad, T-H-I-N-K-S-Q-U-A-D. Answer the short membership questions. That's all that it takes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Worldview Legacy. Thank you to my high school apologetics students. If you listen to this, you guys were the first guinea pigs for this talk, and I appreciate you. This episode was produced by yours truly, Joel Sedekase. This is a production of the Think Institute. We equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message, and we are based by God's grace.